Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. As you're probably aware, we've been on hiatus for about three months due to the Lake Champlain expedition I was doing. Well, we're now back, and this is our special Halloween return episode. And our special guest tonight is Roland Watson of the Loch Ness Mystery Blog, who I'm sure many of you are aware of. Hello, Roland. Hello, Scott. And our uh, subject tonight is the results of the Loch Ness Environmental DNA Survey, which we plan on discussing in depth, and the implications from the result of the environmental DNA survey point to Nessie possibly being a giant eel. We're also going to discuss that. So, Roland, do you want to set this up and explain how this all got started? Wasn't it wasn't it a, a chance meeting between um, Adrian Schein and Neil Gimmel that started this whole thing? Yeah, well, I think uh, a few years back, I think Neil Gimmel was obviously a Professor of Genetics at Otago University. He has always been an expert in this field, and I think he wanted uh, a way of promoting the subject uh, in a scientific manner to the, the general populace. And I believe in it, he got into discussion with uh, another scientist, Darren Nish, who suggested he come over to Loch Ness and conduct some environmental studies there. And this led to him teaming up with Adrian Shine, because Adrian Shine is uh, the go-to person for technical matters at Loch Ness, being based at the Loch, being a curator of the Loch Ness Exhibition Centre, uh, Loch Ness Centre now. And he and Adrian, Adrian and Neil, teamed up last June to do some samples of the Loch. Uh, Neil was there initially to scout the Loch maybe a few months before April, and they came up with a plan to involve various depths, equipment required, and they had the lock in June last year. And they went away with 250 samples of water, taking it to various locations and depths. And it's only uh, in the last few months that we actually got the results. September, to be precise. Uh, we had a uh, what you'd call an international press conference, I suppose. It was live-casted to the world. I was watching it myself. Uh, and he came up with some results, which we're going to discuss. Uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an expensive project. It's a complex matter. It requires a lot of people, a lot of organisation and knowledge. But they pulled it off. Well, one thing... <clears throat> One thing that kind of struck me as odd about this whole situation is that normally with a big high-profile science project like this, all the press conferences and multimedia stuff is usually done after a formal paper has already been published. <laughs> so this is kind of has people raising questions about why they went ahead and held a press conference and had did a television special before the formal paper has even been refereed and published. Yeah, um, 
Well, certainly the results are partial, and we go back to September when the results were announced. To me, why they did it then is a matter of conjecture. Uh, the actual scientific paper itself, I don't think it's going to see anything much different in terms of general conclusions. But I think there's so much media speculation about what this survey could reveal. I think that uh, all three are documentary makers knocking on the door, they probably wanted something out there sooner rather than later. It's all speculation. I have to ask Neil Gamow about the timing of these matters. But yeah, I think it was just something that they wanted out there quickly. Yeah, media pressure, basically, actually. Well, I don't deny that there was, you know, people wanted to find out the results as quickly as possible, me included. I mean... But... A lot of people are unhappy with the results and therefore have attacked the survey as being less scientific than it would appear to be and then accusing it of being a publicity stunt. And the fact that they went ahead and did this before there was any science paper in the literature kind of gives fuel to the people that take that stance. I personally am not taking that stance, but there are a lot of people out there that are unhappy with the results that are calling it a publicity stunt. So what's your take on all that? That's well, not a theory I ascribe to either. Is there, <clears throat> well, I don't know what people are trying to imply by this, this, this kind of a result. I mean, they found most of the species they expected to find, so in some uh, we, it was a, a success. Uh, they, they are, their main motive was to promote science. You know, uh, Neil Gamble all along was up front in stating that he wanted uh, people to be more aware of how DNA could be used to, in terms of media, uh, sorry, in terms of environmental studies, uh, in terms of preserving species by basically looking for what is extant in locks and lakes. So I think uh, in terms of a public exercise, he probably got what he wanted. The, the actual scientific paper that will be coming out is going to go out to a very limited audience. Uh, it's, going to, it's probably going to be quite a highly technical paper that you know probably I won't be able to understand uh, if it's going to use a lot of DNA terminology and genetics genetic speak. Uh, so I think I mean, the paper that's coming out, is, if people think that that's uh, some kind of big event, it's not. It's just, it's just going to be a paper that appears in some scientific journal. Uh, not many people are going to read it. Uh, so I think what came out media-wise may be more advanced publicity for the, the scientific paper than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the... the uh Claims about a giant eel, you know, that's kind of ambiguous. You know, you can take it, <clears throat> they say that, that it's possible because of the large amount of eel DNA, it's a surprising amount of eel DNA that they got from the results, which surprised them, left them with the possibility of their existing giant eels in Loch Ness and their implication that that is probably the quote, real Loch Ness Monster. Other people have said, well, it only says that there's a large yeah. amount of DNA 
ill-DNA in there, all that says is there are a bunch, a large amount of, of regular ills in there, and that there is no Loch Ness Monster. So, you know, you can, you can carry a lot of things away from this. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised that they found a lot of uh, eel DNA. I assume by that they mean DNA fragments, because uh, the eel, I mean, Loch Ness has been famous historically for the large amount of eels that are in there that come up from uh, migrate through the Loch system. Uh, I mean, Tim, Tim Dinsdale and others, they attested to the fact there was millions, millions of eels in the Loch. I've got a newspaper clip in from the 1960s, talks about hundreds of thousands of glass eels, elvers being transported to Hungary for Loch Ness. So, uh, certainly at some point in the, the past, maybe not now, there was a huge population of eels. So maybe what, what I'm suggesting here is that uh, when Neil Gamble said he was surprised with the amount of eel, eel DNA, uh, what he's suggesting is there's more than he thought, as opposed to an absolute number. Because we know that uh, the European eel, Anguilla, Anguilla, uh, the numbers have crashed uh, over the century. We're talking about maybe uh, uh, the population may be only 5-10% of what it was in decades past, due to overfishing, uh, pollution and so on. Uh, maybe even climate change, but I'm not going to say anything particular on that point. So maybe he's, he's more saying that there's more than he expected there. Because when I, uh, when I asked him about actually whether this DNA study could be used to uh, estimate biomass, how many eels, how many salmon, how many char, he said it couldn't be used for that. It couldn't be used to estimate relative fish stocks. So I think what he's basically saying is, we're expecting European eels to be kind of endangered species around these parts, but actually they seem to be thriving a bit more than they thought. That's my take on that. Ah, so you're not on the uh, Nessie is a giant eel bandwagon necessarily. That, 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 that statement just made is more to do with eel population. Uh, now, as to whether Nessie is a giant eel, well, I actually, my... my my own thoughts are that Nessie is a form of giant fish of some sort. Uh, obviously, eels are fish. Uh, I've, never, I've never really taken a stance as to what family or species Nessie could be, because I do not have enough information to make that kind of deduction. So, apart from putting aside itinerant Nessies, I, would, I always take the view that it's, it's something big, Something that's a water breather, something that's deep down. Now, obviously, eels kind of fit that uh, spec. Uh, so I was thinking, uh, well, I mean, giant eels. He was saying we could not exclude giant eels from from the results, and he was correct. I mean, he was saying he couldn't prove a negative or disprove a negative. So, and as I've said in my blog, well, in the same way. He couldn't exclude giant salmon or giant uh, cormorants. He couldn't exclude giant uh, toads from this DNA study. But, you know, putting that kind of sarcastic aside, we do know that giant eels exist in the more tropical regions, 14 foot plus uh, kind of eels. So the question is, could these kind of animals uh, be in Loch Ness? Now, I'm not excluding the possibility that we can have large eels in Loch Ness, because uh, we've had apocryphal tales of 
large ewes being caught in lock in, in, in canal locks. We've had tales of uh, large ewes brushing round divers' legs. Um, we can't prove any of that, but and we had that recent video uh, from the River Ness. Yep. Of something long uh, passing through the waters past a rather worried-looking salmon. So I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we found eels in excess of six foot long in Loch Ness. Because the main point is Nessie is 30 foot long, 30 foot plus. So I don't think, there's, there's no sense. No, that's 30 foot eel is a, could happen in the oceans, but could it happen in Loch Ness? I mean, giant eels are certainly a, a, a theory with a, a, ven, a venerable history. I'm thinking back to Roy Mackle. Now, well, yeah, absolutely. Actually, the that... giant the giant eel idea has always been one of my favorite theories after the plesiosaur and amphibian ideas. Well, let's, let's unpack it a bit. So, I mean, there's obviously a, a giant eel could fit into a, a, a mosaic, a mosaic of what Nessie could be. But obviously, if you're a skeptic, then you have a, a multifaceted approach to Nessie, you know, beaks, birds, dogs, boat weeks, and so on. Uh, they say Nessie's not one thing. So how, how do we account for a giant eel when it comes to some of the more uh, unique features of the monster? I mean, if we, if we go to Roy Mackle, uh, he, he did a kind of checklist of various potential creatures the monster could be, and he, he ran through various ones, such as the Plesiosaur, obviously. He went through uh, some amphibians, um, invertebrates, and he included the eel. So he had a, 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 a dozen, maybe 30, a 30 point checklist of features and could be uh, correlated against a monster. So he did, he did a kind of plus minus graph and he totted up the remarks. And the giant eel came out second in the list. There's a list of six candidates and uh, a giant, a giant European eel uh, came out 78% of the hits. Uh, he actually went for a, an emboloma, a kind of uh, amph giant amphibian, came out 88%. But then, I mean, the things that, obviously, the minuses against the giant eel are size. You know, eels are, tend not to be 30, 40 feet in size. Uh, they don't possess limbs, anterior, posterior limbs. There's not a head neck configuration. And do they have a mane, a frill, as we see on neck reports? Do they have slit-like eyes or large eyes? You know, and we, we, can add, we can add other things to that list, such as uh, is there a kind of throat region? Because the, the monsters often report of a kind of a white underside. Now, we need to explain these things, uh, you know, because all the famous sightings, I mean, we think of something like uh, the Greg Alpussi sighting in 1970, 71, uh, where he saw a pole, pole-like neck, six foot long, sticking at the water like a, a post at the water. Yeah. Now, an eel cannot do that, okay? Or we have the undulated humps, as in, for example, the Margaret Monroe or Marjorie, Marjorie Moyer said she saw three humps flattened out to two, and flatten it straight. The only way to explain half a kneel is if you had a, a kind of main, a main configure, a, 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 a frill 
on his back, which was actually adjusting in the wind or with the water. Kind of so, like a ribbon. Pardon? Kind of like a, a ribbon. ribbon would behave. Yeah, a ribbon, yeah. Yeah. So you have to, you have to uh, kind of become an optical illusion then, rather than real humps. Uh, we also have, uh, obviously, land sightings. We, we know eels can go on land, but let's admit that they're not very fast. So you'd probably, uh, <laughs> you'd probably uh, keep up with it quite easily. Uh, but, I mean, the, the monster is uniformly described as thin neck, bulky body, long tail. So unless unless we have a, an unusual eel species, like uh, let's talk about the gulper eel, for example. They yeah. know the gulper eel had, can take on water and inflate its head uh, underwater. So you'd have to be thinking about a configuration like that, or maybe like the puffer fish. You have some kind of curious hybrid of a puffer fish where the eel can rapidly take an air for some reason and that possibly could inflate the middle section of it because we're not aware of any such species. But as you know, life continues to surprise us with uh, unusual species of animals, with unusual forms of behaviour and adaptations. So, uh, but, it's a, but there's also lots of pluses for these kind of things. Uh, you could even argue that uh, eels can mimic horns or antenna that's seen on the Loch Ness Monster. They can make an animal sounds. Uh, they can survive in low water, fresh water, salt water. So it always, it always has a lot going for it. Uh, but it's always a, just a nagging doubt at the back of my mind is, is something not quite right about the giant neotheme. We, we basically need to have something. Uh, we have possibly two cryptids. Uh, one that visits the loch and one that's a permanent resident. Uh, the permanent resident being the giant eel. Uh, whereas you have some long neck creature that occasionally comes in the, uh, from the sea, being a pleasure saw or a, a sea serpent of some kind. <clears throat> but then you begin to add complexity, uh, layers of complexity. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think? Well, uh, I don't know if you've noticed some of the photographs I've been posting lately, yep. but I've <clears throat> found photographs of, of eels with hormonal imbalances that yeah. give them a fat central body unlike a normal ill configuration. Yeah. And also in some of these, there's an elongation between the pectoral fins and the head that make it appear like it has a long neck. So if you had these eunuch uh, eels like Roy Mackel was speculating about, that don't follow their normal hormonal impulses to go to the sea, spawn and die, but continue to live on and get bigger, they could potentially have a body configuration resembling a plesiosaur with a fat body and the elongated, thin-looking uh, neck region. Because I've actually got photographs of eel specimens that look like that. Yeah, and... <clears throat> If you talk about a shortish kind of neck, yeah. Uh, but we, we, we have we have reports of the monster bending its neck like a swan. Yeah, no, I don't you, I don't think no, an eel would be able to do that. No. Uh, the, the, wherever the monster's neck is, it's very a very flexible arrangement. Uh, so the, uh, the, the thing, obviously, the thing I want to point out here is. That, uh, <clears throat> 
we sometimes uh, accuse skeptics of changing the data to fit the theory. Okay, you know they'll say that well, we didn't actually see our thirty-foot creature; it was only three foot long, and that fits in nicely with my cormorant theory, or things like that. Yeah, but we, you know, other on the other side of the camp, sometimes we change the theory too much to fit the data. If you see what I mean? Yes. And we and we begin to create comp composite monsters, uh, which are but Frankenstein. You know, he's so on an arm here, so on a head here, and. Uh, come up with something that, uh, but, but, uh, so we've got to be careful, we do keep adding things which are well, really speculative. One obvious flaw to the ill idea is that eels do not have pelvic fins, none of them. Yeah. They've lost their yeah. pelvic appendages, and the moray eels don't even have pectoral, pectoral fins, they have no uh, fins like that at all, so... When you've got well, something yeah. like when you got something like Arthur Grant's report, where he said it had four appendages and was hopping like a frog almost, trying to get away from him, that is problematic for it being any kind of eel. Well, you've got an issue there because, uh, okay, and the vast majority of reports are in water, okay, ninety odd percent. So, uh, and we re we rarely if I ever see appendages. Because they're always under the water, uh, the thing would have to roll in the water for anything to become visible. This is where land sightings are important, because you, you see the whole thing. You see, you see the creature from head head to tip of its tail. So, uh, but what I'm saying is, because uh, that's interesting, because we're given a lot of leverage to land sightings. There's only about maybe three dozen land sightings. Uh, constituting a few percent of the entire sightings record. So we're, we're quite putting quite a lot of leverage on these land sightings. Uh, so got to be careful there. But if people are being accurate in what they describe, it doesn't sound like any giant eel to me, purely going by land sightings, which, as I say, are just a few percent. It depends how much importance you attach to land sightings, because I know that some people believe us, don't accept land sightings. The people Alistair Boyd didn't believe in them, uh, Alex Campbell didn't believe in them, uh, certainly at one point. Even Frank Serrell didn't believe in land sightings. So, uh, I do. So I use them as an important kind of... Uh, well, I, I also believe that, that yes, they're valid because you have them from Lake Champlain and you have them from Okanagan Lake. And 11 years before yes. the Spicers and Arthur Grant, you had the same thing happening in Argentina in 1922 with the Patagonian mm -hmm. plesiosaur. So, obviously something is going on. It's not a made-up phenomenon. So, unless, unless you want to accept that our giant ears in Loch Ness may be 10, 15 foot long, but you also have something coming into the loch as an itinerant monster, yeah, actually some people do believe that. Yeah, I know people believe that actually is it times more than once more than one species in the loch because it's a, a major waterway for some of them between the Atlantic parts of the North and South Atlantic so yeah well touching on this idea of a transient Loch Ness monster one immediate yeah. red flag that came up is the fact that they found no otter DNA 
or no seal DNA. And we know seals occasionally visit the lock. They're not in there all the time. What do they think? Maybe once every two or three years they come in? Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't yeah. rule out some other transient Loch Ness monster, including sturgeons, possibly Greenland sharks. I've recently found out that the Greenland shark has been seen off Scotland. Yeah. And plesiosaurs, obviously. I've been seen off Scotland. Okay. Yeah. So. Sea serpents. Yeah, these. Um, the fact that you may have something come in and visit occasionally and then quickly go back out, you wouldn't necessarily find the environmental DNA of it. Is the same as the situation with the seals that we know from the, the recent results. Yeah, yeah. So where seals are occasional visitors, visitors to Loch, they, they chase the salmon of the River Ness, or uh, against the River Ness, uh, f uh, slow water. Uh, we know about this because anglers constantly complain about them. Uh, the, ne the Ness Fishery Board uh, is not allowed to shoot them, apparently, unless they're stuck in the loch. Uh, seals, seals, seals frequently come up the River Ness uh, chasing the salmon. Uh, but getting, getting, completing that journey to the loch is uh, more is a rare event. Uh, but while, while they're in the river nest, you can't shoot them because they have an escape route. They can go back out to the sea. But the thing I want to point out here is uh, once a seal is in Loch Ness, I think it's trapped. They're not, they're not likely to get out. Uh, what happens then is uh, they begin to eat up the salmon. Uh, there's no remedy for it in terms of catching them or them finding their way back out, so they, they, they'll get a license to shoot them. Uh, so the same thing would probably happen with a, let's say a plesiosaur got into Loch Ness, it's basically going to stay there. Uh, because it, well, it depends how intelligent the animal is, but uh, what kind of uh, guidance system it has in its head. But uh, when, when I see itinerants, uh, they're coming and they're most likely going to stay there. Now, we have reports of the creatures that have been seen in the River Ness going in both directions. So sometimes we see them going up the river and sometimes going the opposite direction. But these are very rare sightings. I mean, I think we have about eight reports from the River Ness over eight decades. So clearly it's uh, an, an itinerant creature uh, it's a rare event, and when, when they do happen, uh, they're going to stick around for a long time until maybe they become, I mean, obviously if you're a saltwater creature coming into a freshwater loch, you've got to ask yourself how long, how, how, how long is that animal going to survive? So uh, when, when an itinerant creature gets into loch, it's a, it's a bit of an event, uh, especially if you're a 30 foot creature. Now, actually, seals, seals are not uh, a bit, bit hard to spot, actually, in the loch. Uh, when one of them came into the loch in 1986, the only people that really reported seeing them were people in fishing boats who saw them up close. So even if an itinerant creature does get in, uh, it's not going to hang around. It's not, it's not going to be very visible. Uh, but the, the normal kind of itinerant scenario is that a, juve, a juvenile creature gets into the loch, somehow survives the, the water imbalance 
and it begins to grow, it adapts, it, it begins to live off the local fish stocks, and we have our monsters, or one or more, as they come and go. So it's a theory for people to consider. Uh, do they want to balance an itinerant creature? Because we know for a fact creatures come into lock. Seals do it all the time. So if a seal can do it, so can other creatures. So it's, it's a bit pointless to argue that uh, a creature couldn't come into Loch Ness because it happens all the time. So we've got to balance that against uh, what could possibly be there from antiquity, such as giant eels. Yeah. So people may want, people may want to hold those two things in tension. Well, <clears throat> the, fact that, the fact that we know that seals do get in and out, and there was no environmental DNA found in the seals, yeah. says to me that we can't afford to ignore the possibility that some of the theories that have been put forward in the past, such as sturgeons coming in occasionally, possibly Greenland sharks, Plesiosaurs yeah. may occasionally come in and out, and you wouldn't find their environmental DNA signature the same way that there was no seal environmental DNA found. Yeah, well, even if uh, even if uh, we had wooden sturgeon in the loch, uh, you may not even find its DNA because it's just one creature. It's easy to find char and eels because there's such a huge number of them. But the DNA of one creature, uh, you've got to get lucky, I guess, because its DNA is not going to be so easily distributed across the entire loch. Yeah. That's where, sam that's where sampling is important. Well, as, just, as Steve yeah. Planback pointed out, there are some environmental studies done on amphibians mm -hmm. that showed that uh, they couldn't find the environmental DNA signature of amphibians in places that they know they had been quite recently. So there are flaws with the abilities environmental of environmental DNA at this point, apparently. Yeah, it's, uh, but the technique itself is probably quite well established, but the, the practical side of it the, the field investigation is going to be potentially, it's not going to be perfect because uh, the, the team of Neil Gemmel took 250 water samples. Uh, now we only have about 50 of those samples documented on his website. Uh, I'm not sure why. I think uh, basically we'll have to wait for these papers for the entire uh, spreadsheet. But yeah. uh, and, you know, 50, so we're talking about 20% of the entire sample. And we get down to deep water. Uh, apparently there's only 11 samples on the public database. 11. You know, what are you going to do with 11 samples? So uh, that, that's quite a, a throwing the dice. But I understand how difficult it is to get down 200 meters and take, take a sample of water. Yeah. So this is, this is always going to be mainly an exercise in upper water. I, I I think they're fighting probably the water chemistry of Loch Ness, too. They probably had to do some special adjustments due to the pH level in Loch Ness, and the peak content and all that is kind of unique to Loch Ness, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the... 
as you know, they had other locks they took samples from to compare and contrast. Uh, well, the peat, does it help preserve DNA? I don't know. Uh, the oxygen levels in the lock could be quite high. I mean, that oxygen is detrimental to preserving DNA. Uh, sunlight uh, breaks down DNA, so you can see that's a positive Loch Ness because it's mainly the peat can absorb the sunlight or reflect it. Yeah. And allow the DNA to preserve. So there's pluses and minuses. Uh, but going back to um, amphibious DNA not being found, I mean, it's basically down to the sampling technique. That this lock is 22 square miles, and it's 754 feet deep at its uh, lowest point. The average depth is about over 200 feet. Uh, you're not going to cover everything. So basically, it's a, it's a statistical play. The more there is of a creature in the loch, the more likely you are to find it. Uh, but having said, I mean, they didn't find otters, they didn't find a uh, uh, roach or newts or some other carp, I think. Was it carp they didn't find? Yeah, so there are, there are things they didn't find. Well, uh, they found obviously no reptilian DNA. So that's, yeah, that was the, the biggest thing that a lot of people took away from it is that they found absolutely no reptilian DNA whatsoever. Now we know that yeah. we know that there are no native freshwater turtles in the UK, but there are three reptiles found in Scotland. Now, do you know if those three reptiles occur around Loch Ness? Well, two I'm aware of. That's it. Uh, the Adder Sneak and the Slow Worm. Now, what's the third one, Scott? Uh, the Common Lizard, I think. Okay, that's not amphibious. Okay. Yeah, but well, these things are not amphibious, are they? I don't think you know, so. I mean, I do have a report from... I have a newspaper clipping from the 1920s, I think, before Nessie got publicised, where uh, two anglers saw this long neck approaching them. Uh, it turned out to be a snake, <laughs> which was swimming across the loch. And uh, got into their boat, or they took it on the boat. And so reptiles have been spotted in Loch Ness. Okay, yeah. that's a fact. All right, that's very cool. I, did, I wasn't aware of this. <laughs> Uh, I do know, you know, back in around 2005, Bob Rines photographed a toad in Loch Ness Correct. that was down very deep. So that tells you right there there were amphibians in Loch Ness, and I believe that the, the Environmental DNA Survey identified three amphibians. Toads, frogs, yeah, I can't remember the other one was. Yeah, but that was interesting because uh, the, the database on the website, Loch Ness Hunters, uh, as I said, it's incomplete. There's only 50-odd samples listed. But the other problem was, uh, for example, uh, one, one sample location, nest number two, uh, they took three samples, right? One at half a metre, one at 100, and one at 200 metres. Uh, but unfortunately, the way the spreadsheet is set out, you can't tell what depth the, the DNA result is referring to. 
So they, on, that, on that particular sampling point in the middle of the loch, uh, they only found two DNA, humans and toads. Okay? So we can assume that the human DNA was found at the half meter depth from boats or whatever else. Uh, but we don't know what depth the toad DNA was found. Was it found at half, 100 or 200 meters? We don't know. Uh, if it's found at half a meter, and that implies they found nothing at 100 or 200 meters, no DNA at all, which I find a bit unusual because we know that there's, there's, an, there's life, there's uh, animal life down at the 200 meter level. They found Arctic char uh, through sampling techniques, uh, netting techniques uh, from previous years. And we know it yields at the bottom of the loch as well because uh, they live in the silt sometimes. So uh, that's why I'm waiting for the full results. Uh, I want to see a full breakdown of what they found at the, low, the lowest depths. Yeah, that's, you know, we have yeah. to emphasize to people that, you know, don't come to any firm conclusions until we get a chance to look at the hard data in the science paper. That will make all the difference in the world. You know, I want to know what they found out. I want to know, one, how many deep water samples they took, uh, 100, 200 meters, especially 200 meters, because that's uh, at the bottom. And B, I want to know what they found. Uh, if they found nothing, that, that's, that implies to me they weren't sampling enough because there is life down there. Well, a lot of people have made a big deal about the fact that 20 to 25 percent of the DNA fragments that they got were unidentifiable or contaminated. Now, some people have interpreted that as, oh, they don't know what it is. That could be the DNA of your monster. But the explanation that yeah. I have heard is that it was simply too contaminated or too fragmented to be of use to identify anything from it. So I don't know, you know. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's true because uh, if, you, if your DNA fragment is too short, uh, the, more, the shorter it becomes, the more ambiguous it becomes. It can match. You, if the shorter it becomes, the more species it matches. So you could get you could get a fragment which matches several numbers of species. So it's not it's not unknown. It's just un, I wouldn't say it's unknown. It's just un, unmatchable. Which is a, probably a different way of putting it. Yeah. So uh, white noise, I they've guess. Got, they've got the amino. The, yeah, they've got they've got the amino. They've got the amino acid sequence right, but it's like uh, it's like a black and white jigsaw puzzle when you got a black piece and you're not sure where it goes. So because uh, there's a hundred of them, so. Uh, it doesn't. It didn't really see anything, uh, because what I'm seeing is, yeah, a lot, a lot of these uh, contaminated. Well, it's not so much contaminated as just too small. Because uh, it could be eel DNA. They just don't know. It could be other fish, animals, terrestrial animals. Could be other things. Could be bacteria or plant life. Uh, basically. They don't know, <coughs> but but hidden amongst that, you could you could argue well maybe there's some reptile DNA in that. Uh, now that that's possible, that cannot be excluded. There could be some reptile DNA that is just not matchable. Uh, but the point is, we'll never know. Yeah. We'll never know, 
unless they go back and do more sampling. Well, I'm hoping that they go back and do more tests. Uh, one thing they could do, apparently you could get environmental DNA from the silt and from core sampling. Yeah. It's another well, possibility. Let me, so. you know, let me point out another thing. These other locks they went to, lock, uh, lock uh, Dunterchag and um, the other ones, so there's four, I think. Uh, they also had unknown DNA. Okay? Yeah. So we, we just have to accept that a certain proportion of an experiment is going to come out unusable data. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's saying that the, the, the number of unknown DNA in those locks, the smaller locks, was, is, is, a, is a red flag. So, uh, so I'm, not, I'm not putting any hopes on what this unknown DNA is, but Neil Gemmell, to his credit, has said, well, we're going to make these databases available, including the unknown fragments, and anyone who's got the wherewithal is welcome to try and match them themselves. Yeah. So, uh, who knows? Someone may take up the challenge. Certainly won't be me because I don't have the, the technology to do it. But going back to the silt, uh, yeah, I mean, back in 2012, I wrote an article on uh, why we hadn't found any carcass of the monster. And I, I suggested we do a, a DNA study back in 2012. Uh, and I, all I could suggest, because I, I couldn't do it, uh, and I suggested that the silt or core samples could possibly hold something. Because we, we know that uh, DNA samples up to a million years old can be preserved in the right conditions. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? Because as you know, silt is a, is a compression of animal matter and other detritus. Yeah. So within that column, you're going to get a lot of data compressed per cubic inch. There's a, there's, you, could, you could find a lot of stuff in there. And it's my own view that uh, if a monster's been there for thousands of years in some form or another, then you've got all these carcasses that have, you know, they've died, they've sunk to the bottom, uh, they've decomposed, the DNA has integrated into the silt. The silt has the silt deposition is about one millimeter a year in the loch. So uh, you eventually build up this column of DNA and who knows what you'll find. I mean, I'm not putting a house on it, but uh, I always thought that was a, you know, taking maybe the first six inches or something, you know, because obviously the deeper you go, the more likely the DNA is to have degraded beyond use. Yeah. So, but it wasn't done because I, I don't know why. I mean, it probably didn't have the equipment to take core samples. Well, yeah, we I know, know I know that Adrian has, has, has done core samples before, yes. Yeah. And Bob but Rines was working toward this carcass idea on his last few expeditions. That's what yeah. they were doing, was looking for carcasses on the bottom. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, sonar has advanced to the point where we can explore... Uh, closer resolutions, uh, anomalous uh, regions that are found by less powerful sonar. I mean, normal sonar is going to be pretty useless at searching the bottom of the lock or that kind of thing uh, because of the, 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 uh, the, the attenuation of the beam as you go further down and such things. Uh, sonar is only 
much only pretty much any any use for open water. So uh, yeah, they found these targets. Some of them just turned out to be tree trunks, that sort of stuff. One turned out to be that Loch Ness uh, monster prop from the uh, Sherlock Holmes film. Yeah. Uh, but that required a sonar missile to be employed. You know, a, a, a remotely yeah. controlled sonar missile, and that's a pretty expensive operation. They call fact, they be, call it a UAV. Yeah, I mean you're pretty pretty. Underwater you automated vehicle, I believe, is the term for it. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't even rent one of those. You're basically relying on the goodwill of the company to come yeah, over to Loch Ness. It's a company called Kongsberg Limited. Yeah. They've been coming there for quite a while now. They were involved in that 2003 BBC survey, the television special. Yeah. 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 So they've been doing yeah. this for quite a while. Yeah, they've been helpful, but they're pretty much relying on their goodwill because, because there ain't much money being thrown at Loch Ness Monster. That's, that's for sure. That's true, but as long as you've got, I mean, you know, a lot of people have criticized Adrian Schein and his people for being anti-Nessie in some of their stances, but at least they're over there looking for something. They're still looking. I mean, obviously, if they didn't think something weird was going on, they probably wouldn't be continuing to look and study the lock. So if there's something there, they're, with, with the approach that they're taking, if there's something there, they're liable to blunder up on it by accident at the very least. So, I encourage yeah, I mean, I, the work yeah. that they're doing, you know. Yeah, I mean, Adrian's been involved in, uh, since the 60s, I believe. He's obviously at Loch Mora first, with Loch Mora Project. Eventually became merged into Loch Ness Project. Uh, back in the 80s, he did a lot of sonar work, uh, uh, studying the ecology of the loch. Yeah. Course, doing the core samples we just mentioned. Yep. Uh, Finding the interesting stuff like the Chernobyl layer, a uh, radioactive layer. Yeah. Uh, right so, I mean, I think it'd be a great idea to dredge the loch. Oh, absolutely. But they're not allowed to do that. You yeah. not get permission to do that. And I, I, I think that's a big shame because we get, as I said, 22, nearly 22 square miles of loch surface underwater. Who cares if you dredge up a hundred, a few hundred square meters? Uh, it could be quite a valuable exercise. At I least mean, do Oki Hart Bay. You know that's where a lot of the big evidence has come from. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's basically underwater archaeology. I mean, you could find a lot of fascinating stuff. Uh, it's not to be. You well, can't even, sac can't even sacrifice point point zero one percent of lock surface for a a dredging. Because having said that, you may still find nothing because the lock bed is so huge. Yeah. You, you, you may find, you just have to get very lucky to find uh, something of interest. My understanding of the geology of Loch Ness is that it's basically two basins and there's a rise in the middle of it. And the reason there's a rise in the middle of it is there was a glacier that broke in half. And when the glacier broke in half, it created that ridge in the middle. Now, would that be the... Yeah, it was a glacier that, that held back a lot of water and ruptured and caused a massive flood in that area. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, part of that yeah. was from Glen Spain, the glacial lake 
the other side of the lock has yeah. Glenn Spain and Glenn Roy. There was an ice dam broke, and it came through Loch Ness, and it raised the water level something like 60 feet and yeah. connected it with the ocean. And that's probably the window that if there is some kind of resident monster, how it got in the lake from the sea. Yeah, that can happen, but to tell you the truth, uh, because seals get in and out all the time, you don't really need a, a glacial event for someone something to get into lock. Yeah. What, 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 is more, what is more likely to happen is you have a lot of rain, uh, the river goes into speed, uh, the water levels rise. I mean, the, the level can rise seven feet uh, after a lot of water, a lot of rain. <coughs> so, I mean, when, when, when the glacier lake uh, ruptured, uh, that was obviously a great opportunity for creatures to just idly swim into the, the loch. Yeah. Know. But but it still happens right up to this day. Creatures can still come in, into the loch. Yeah. So it's... Well, two things I think that we can take away from this environmental DNA study, yeah. taking it at face value, is that, number one, there is not a resident population of plesiosaurs living in Loch Ness. And there's not a resident population of whales catfish living in Loch Ness. Yeah, well, I mean, you didn't have to mount a DNA study to figure out a lot of this stuff. Because let, let's, let's be fair about this. Uh, excluding, excluding the 1934 uh, spike of sightings, we're averaging about 10 sightings a year. And <clears throat> if you... That's before you even decide what, what sightings are actually just mis misidentities and hoax. So that tells me that <coughs> whatever this creature is, it's, it's not really an, an open water creature. And the, surf the surface watches of the 1960s, the sonar sweep of the 80s, which produced some results, but not many, uh, proves to me this creature is more a lower depth creature which occasionally comes up to the surface. I mean, we have sonar traces of creatures rising up in the depths, doing loops and heading back down. Uh, <coughs> so the DNA is actually just confirming what we already knew, uh, those who study the eyewitness database. So uh, in terms of a, a herd of monsters, uh, I, I think it's possible that decades ago, centuries ago, there was a lot more of these creatures around. <coughs> so what this DNA study can't do, history, because back in the 1930s or 1830s, 1730s, there's a, a vast, I think there's a much larger biostock in Loch Ness, plenty more fish with creatures to feed on. Uh, I think there was a bigger population of animals, which you could call a breeding population. Uh, but with uh, Pollution, overfishing, acid rain, all these other <laughs> things that come in. Uh, I think the population is going down. So in terms of a viable herd, you may not have you may not have it. They could be they could be potentially dying out as we speak. Uh, that's, uh, that is probably unfortunately true. Uh, I can't prove it. 
Well, Bob yeah. Ryan's Bob Ryan's had the same idea, but I think he may have jumped the gun in saying that they're already all dead. Yeah, because I just think not dead yet. Yeah. There's still there's still sightings going on, but they're not as grand as the historical sightings. But I mean, I, I to be I mean, uh, for example, I mean, I I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a advocate of the Roy Johnson photographs, the James Gray photographs, which to me are proof that there's still a long neck creature in the loch. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, one, maybe two, three. Uh, I, still, I still think it's still there. Uh, whether it could get in and out of the loch, I don't know. I mean, we begin to talk about underwater channels now, don't we? Things like that, not just uh, the river Ness. Yeah. But I think it's, it's still there. Uh, what, what would be required to get the population back up? Well, uh, the, the government and other agencies are taking action to make sure that salmon populations uh, are stabilised and are back on, hopefully back on the rise again. You have a catch and release policy for fishermen, anglers. You can't just keep the fish or the salmon you catch or the trout. You've got to chuck them back in. Uh, so I try to get the, the numbers back up. You need fish like, you know, obviously we also had uh, after the war, we had big building projects for hydroelectric schemes uh, around the Creek Glen. So you'd have uh, rivers being dammed up uh, to turn them into hydroelectric power stations. And that, was really, that proved really difficult for salmon to get up the river, things like that. And you get eels which have been chopped up by the turbines of the Foyers power station. Uh, yep. So they tried to address all these things, get get the biomass and lock back up. William McDonald, when I had him on the show, was talking about how they had found large eels chopped up in the turbines of the hydroelectric uh, plant. Yeah. Well, I wish someone had kept some pieces. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, one interesting thing to me is that in, in order for the possibility of there being plesiosaur DNA found in the survey, they had mocked up what they thought hypothetical plesiosaur DNA would look like. And they had settled on something between birds and crocodiles. And when I heard about this, I was a little taken aback because current evolutionary schemes about where the plesiosaurs belong on the reptile family tree seem to suggest that they're somehow shared a common ancestor with turtles. So yeah. I thought a sea turtle DNA profile would be a better match than something between birds and crocodiles, which sounds more like a dinosaur. And anybody that knows anything about plesiosaurs knows that they were not dinosaurs. But I don't know. There's a lot of debate about exactly where the plesiosaurs fall on the reptile family tree. They fall somewhere between lizards and dinosaurs. But they have traditionally thought to have been closer to lizards yeah. than dinosaurs. So I don't know. I posted about this in the Marine Reptiles Facebook group and was bombarded by like 10 different opinions. So even even at this late date, they can't decide exactly where the plesiosaurs and the sauropterygians, their relatives, 
belong in the reptile family tree. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, you made an important point there. Yeah, you talk about plesiosaurs from, uh, what, 65 million years ago? Yeah. So uh, what, what would a plesiosaur look like today? Yeah, that's, I don't know. You know, a lot of, a lot of the objections deal. of people say, well, this aspect of the Loch Ness Monster doesn't match what we knew about plesiosaur anatomy from 65 million years ago. If they continued to evolve, they may have changed. So, yeah. It's just possible to say because, I mean, alligators, crocodiles are largely unchanged. Uh, I believe that's true, true since the time of dinosaurs. More or less. Uh, well, that's uh, yeah. So, would plesiosaurs have remained stable, or would they branched off? Or the older ones died off, and the uh, descendants of today would they be uh, have a totally different DNA structure? I don't know. Yeah, just, the point is nobody knows. So, but it's still an interesting thing to discuss, you know. Yeah, well, that's that's it. I mean, it's making the 3D fit the data. Yeah. yeah it's, we're kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. We, we say, what about this bit? What about that bit? And we come up with these composite, you know, but what the attraction of giant eel is that it's, it's largely the same eel as uh, the European eel. Uh, we're not chopping and changing it to get a monster identical picture. Uh, it's basically the same eel, but you've added a few minor adjustments like hormonal, hormonal imbalances. Well, what I'm telling you, <laughs> what I'm saying to you is that I've got proof uh, that these yeah. hormonal imbalances can create an eel that resembles a plesiosaur, believe it or not. Right. And if, if, you had, right if you had conger eels that could adjust to freshwater conditions, they would be the perfect candidate because we already know from these monster conger eels that are caught off Cornwall and Plymouth in southern England, they can get eight, seven, ten feet long even. So if you already had an eel that was ten feet long, you wouldn't have to blow it up too much to come up with something that would make a respectable nasty. And well, if, uh, yeah, Roy, Roy Michael's thick-bodied eel uh, pretty much still looks like an eel. I mean, it, your, your picture of an eel looks uh, more Nessie-like than his picture. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's an actual, those are actual photographs. I'm going to put those photographs in the slideshow accompanying this episode. So, I, I'm wondering if... Uh, if you had an eel which was capable of distending its middle section with a gas, a gas like air or something, could that could it then achieve a buoyancy that raises its neck out of the water around? That would its be the, the swim bladder blowing up. Yes. If you had a kind of organic, a kind of positive buoyancy effect, over over positive. Yeah. Maybe some some kind of mating display or aggressive display. Yeah, we know what puffer, puffer fish blow up when, when they're uh, threatened. Uh, if we have an eel which could somehow expand its middle section with gas in it, that would push the four, push its head above the water. Yeah, uh, it still wouldn't. It would still wouldn't have a set of back appendages though. 
which is somewhat problematic because you've definitely got some Nessie reports that describe four limbs. So that can't be uh, yeah, reconciled Grant, you know, with a with an eel, but I don't know. Arthur Grant, Arthur Grant does. Spicers don't mention anything much in the way of four uh, rear flippers. Yeah. Uh, others do. Uh, but the, the only thing that struck me was we have a couple of reports which have three toad tracks. Three toad tracks. Yeah. How do you explain that? That doesn't sound like a flipper, to be honest, but... Yeah, I don't know. That sounds more like a mammal or a reptile. Well, now, some some pinnipeds, seals, have flippers with toes. So, if we're dealing with some kind of seal-like animal, well, that could explain the, that, yeah. Back to the itinerant creature. Yeah. Because a pinniped yeah, that's resident in the law could be probably caught by now, you know? So, uh, so it has to be a visitor. Almost but certainly. You know, we, 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 if you had a large stainless sea cow type creature visiting the loch, uh, which dies off eventually, you know, that, that would explain a lot of sightings there. Uh, I mean, maybe during the 1930s, something big got into the loch, uh, along with smaller ones, and the, the, mean, the mean adult died off, and the smaller ones. Uh, the sightings tailed off into the war, <coughs> and these smaller creatures grew larger over the decades. So that's just a idle speculation on my part. But a large, a long neck pinniped has always been something I believe in. Uh, I just wasn't ready to apply it as a resident Did uh, indigenous creature. Did you know a fellow named Steve Ravenhill? He rings a bell, but... Well, he passed away recently, but anyway, he had an idea about the creatures coming in once every 30 years to breed in Loch Ness. And he speculated that there was something going on in the 1930s where there were a bunch of them there, and then they kind of went away, and then a bunch of them came back in the 1960s. Oh, yes. Just an idea, you know, I don't know. Nobody really knows, but it is an interesting idea. Every 30 years. That's quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, seals, seals obviously just breed every every spring along the, the shores of the Scottish uh, I don't. Coastline. I don't think that Steve was suggesting that they were seals, but they were some kind of unknown creature. That normally lives in the sea, and it came in once in a blue moon to Loch Ness to breed or do something, and then went back out in mass. But I don't know. Well, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now we know we can see yes and lose that. So, what do you do? You want to summarize your thoughts on all this? Yeah. So. DNA study was worth doing. It proved that it could be fairly accurate in capturing all the the known species. It's not perfect because it mainly due to the sampling technique you can miss stuff like otters and other fish like uh, in smaller numbers like uh, roach. <laughs> uh, so I don't think it's been proven that 
the deepest levels, uh, I think the DNA of creatures at the bottom in the lock and the silt uh, is pretty much a hit and miss affair. Uh, but I'd like to see more data on that because the full results have not been published. So uh, some part of me wants to hold back on this because I want to see it. Well, not what they found at the highest layers, but what they found at the deepest layers. Well, me too. I'm waiting for the final paper. And I hope they don't have any problems getting past the referees to get it published quickly. I think that. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a breakthrough of sorts. I mean, it's the closest thing we have to a type specimen at this point, which is major. We have biological evidence now <coughs> of what may or may not be living in Loch Ness, and it's definitely a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah, yeah whether it leads to anything else, uh, I'm not sure, because it's quite a time-consuming uh, adventure to do it. So I would just possibly suggest you don't necessarily have to come back to the loch, but I mean, people like Adrian Shine could do the work for them. And maybe, as I suggested earlier, they take some uh, silt samples and send, them, send those off right for analysis. Exactly. Yeah, how you, how you actually extract DNA from silt, I'm not sure. Because uh, when you do it with pure water, you just have to run it through a filter and uh, and and capture the DNA, but silt is a very dirty procedure. Well, so from, what, from what I've read about the process, they they get the water samples, then they use chemicals and extremes in temperature to separate the DNA material from the water. Then once they've got the DNA material separated from the water, then they have to run it through gene sequencing computers to get the gene sequences out of the biological material. And they have yeah, to do... Else? Yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to do this with computers, and it probably... I mean, a DNA strand is just unbelievable for a human being to be able to sit down and decode. So they have to use computers to do it. And that takes time, I'm sure. So yeah, it was probably yeah. most of... I would imagine most of Gimmel and his associates' work the real hard part came after they had gotten the water samples. That was the easiest part. The, the hard part was probably isolating the DNA samples and then identifying them against a bank of genetic sequences from other sources, from known animals yeah. trying to match them up, you know? Yeah, well, even if they found one strand, they could probably do something like that because they have a special chemicals to multiply the DNA strands so they can multiply them up. Yeah. So they can have more more to work with. I think that's where that polymer polymer something polymer race chain reaction comes in. Yeah. It somehow multiplies the DNA sequences. Uh, that's that's vital, yeah. Yeah, some kind of chemical <laughs> process. So even if they found one strand, they could probably do something with it. Yeah. So long, assuming it was long enough. Yeah. The, the length is important. Yeah. yeah but as you know, the longer it stays in the water, the more it breaks up. Yeah. So, so one, one strand is only going to survive a few weeks, maybe. Yeah. It has to be, they have to come at the right time and get the new supply. It's just been uh, ejected by the creature. 
Well, one one interesting thing that I want to know is the eel DNA that they got. Is there a possibility that it's conger eel DNA in addition to just the freshwater eel DNA? Because they didn't really say. If they found yep. conger eel DNA in Loch Ness, that would be a major thing. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I did, I did ask what eel they found, and they said anguilla anguilla, which is a European eel. Yeah. So it didn't, is, it didn't sound like they found any other yeah. eel types. It's just, just Well, one interesting thing there. is the New Zealand freshwater eel, Anguilla diffenbachii, is related to, distantly related to, the European eel, and they get much larger. They can get six feet long, and they look a lot like a conger eel, even though they are freshwater eels. So the possibility is there that the European eels in Loch Ness may mutate due to a hormonal imbalance into eels resembling the New Zealand freshwater eel. That's another possibility without having to bring conger eels into the argument at all. So I don't know. Wait uh, I, did find, I, did find a, I did find a clip in uh, one, so I wish I kept it. Uh, some guy claimed he only found a, he only caught a six foot eel in Loch Ness. Uh, that must have been a long time ago. Mm. Only six foot. You're thinking this cat couldn't be the Loch Ness monster. It's only six foot long. Uh, so I think there's quite a possibility uh, in the past you've had six foot eels in Loch Ness. Uh, but I mean, Anguilla, Anguilla. Three, four feet the most, I'm not sure. But who knows? Yeah, I definitely think that the giant eel idea deserves more scrutiny and uh, more study. Thank supporters. Yeah. Well, I have an open mind on the subject, so. I just ain't caught one yet. That's true. Yeah. It'd be pretty hard to land, actually, because they don't. Fishermen don't know how the equipment for that type of creature. Well, there are, there are allegedly big pikes in Loch Ness, too, and you hardly ever hear much about them. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I mean, there's stories of nets being dragged away, uh, fishing line reels being used up uh, <laughs> and snapped. So, who knows? The, the anglers just do not have the equipment to capture really big creatures. Well, yeah, you'd have to have some kind of a rig like you were hunting a great white shark or something to yeah. catch an animal that big. No, no one's going to go to Loch Ness for that. If it was, <laughs> you know, and if it was, if you were using traditional fishing equipment and whatever you had on your line was very deep and the line broke, you wouldn't know what it was. No, i just go straight to the bottom of the loch. Yeah. Pulling that line with it. Nothing to do about it. So, unknown. Yeah. Well, so, I guess we've pretty much well covered the subject, unless there's anything you want to add. Uh, well, I certainly should uh, have a follow-up talk when this paper's published. Yeah. So, well, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome to come back on when the paper comes out, and we'll have another discussion after we read the paper. Yeah, well, that may be after Christmas. Uh, yeah, just whenever. Uh, we'll figure it out. As I said, out. it could be quite a technical, technical paper. Yeah. Dressed the scientific community. Yeah. So. Well, I'm a pretty smart guy. I think I could sit down and, with some research, decode some of it at least. 
So. No, I, certainly, I certainly want to see the database. Yeah. Sa- the, sam- the sample results for everything. Yeah. It may be more interesting than what it doesn't see than what it does see. Yeah. Again. Well, I think the part that everybody's really interested in about is the supposed unidentifiable parts. What's well, in that? Let's see. Let's, see. let's see what he has to say about that. Yeah. Let's see what anything new has to be said about that. But uh, at this point in time, nothing was discovered of importance. Yeah. Well, the only but thing, the only the only bone they threw to the Nancy crowd is the giant eel idea, which was already out there. Yeah. But this may be more evidence pointing in that direction. Yeah. So. Well, it's certainly giving that a boost. That's for sure. Yeah. So it's it's better than no monster at all. You know. Well, if they had a 20-foot giant eel, I would be very happy. Yeah. Not as romantic as a previous thought, but... Better than nothing. It'd excite, it would excite the scientific community. It's more exciting to me than a sturgeon or a whale's catfish. Uh, and it would uh, vindicate the, the eyewitnesses. So yeah, so. yeah. And eels are amphibious and sturgeon are not, so that's even better. That's right. So. That's right. So, we shall wait and see. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show, and I guess we'll wrap this up. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if any comments. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. It's always an honor to have you on here. Okay, Scott, thank you. Good night, folks. Then, Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.